Welcome to the Photoethics Podcast. I'm your host, Savannah Dodd, and I'm the founder of the Photography Ethics Center. Each week, I'll be talking with an accomplished photographer about the ethics of their practice. Today, in episode number 10, we'll be talking with Alison Baskerville about negotiating your own identity. Alison Baskerville is a documentary photographer. As a former soldier-turned-artist, Allison has a rare insight into gender and conflict. She has the desire and capacity to make work that reflects on important contemporary issues, such as gender equality, military occupation, female identity in the forces, and the long-term consequences of armed conflict. She's the founder of the safety training movement, ROAR, and she's the recent recipient of a Developing Your Creative Practice grant from Arts Council England. She's currently working to explore photographic-based research and to create a safe place for researching personal memories and archives, which will require reflection on her military past to enable her journey as a more critically engaged artist. Maybe we could start by you telling me a little bit about your journey into photography. I got into photography slightly accidentally. Um, I was interested in art and photography when I was quite young, um, around about 18, 19. But the situation I was growing up in, going into something creative as like any form of career was kind of forbidden in my family. It wasn't really seen as a, a thing to do. I think the way that I was brought up and where I was brought up, just uh, in Staffordshire in the UK, was uh, it was more of an emphasis on getting a job you know, a good job or a job that pays. And certainly like art and photography was not seen as one of those types of jobs. So I had to sort of like suppress that creative side of me quite early on in life to be able to um, not so much meet um, the expectation of my parents, but because I I didn't see any value in a creative career myself because I wasn't really sort of shown that that could be that case uh, and where I lived. The art college I went to, also, its main focus wasn't photography. So I think I was slightly interested at a younger age, but I didn't quite have the passion or perhaps the resources to follow or pursue photography at that point in life. And uh, it's been interesting because I kind of shelved it for most of my working life because I joined the REF when I was 21. And I think part of that was to kind of make my parents proud. It was also to um, go on an adventure. I think I've always been a very um, curious person. And I used the military as a kind of way to uh, get access to sort of traveling, to work with people, to get some form of structure, because my childhood was a little bit chaotic in some respects. So... I sort of was quite drawn into the military and I think I I represent a little bit of a cliche that a lot of uh, people join the military because they might have a bit of uh, an issue in childhood and seek to kind of recreate a family through the military. And I mean, I didn't know that then at all. You know, I just thought it it was a good career and it would be exciting. So... I didn't really think about art or photography or anything like that for quite a long time. I'd say about nine years into my military career, sort of photography appeared again, but it was in a very 
different way to perhaps what I'd done at art school, which was using it as a means of surveillance. So using cameras to watch people with, to record their movements. And this was very present in perhaps uh, when we were in Iraq, where we would photograph buildings, roads, uh, things to familiarize ourselves with the city that we're in, which was Basra, because there were no road signs, no ways for us to know which way to go. We had maps, but we didn't really, that didn't really help because the maps didn't have road signs either. And again, this is a cultural thing in the sense that if you lived in Basra, you would know exactly where you're going. The British military, we had to sort of make our own maps for, and part of that was to take photographs, which was quite interesting because it felt, um, even at that point, uh, quite invasive to be kind of photographing street corners, road signs, things like that for us to use to familiarise ourselves, but also very helpful because it helped us to understand where we were. But what I started to realise is, or, or recognise as well, is that you're also kind of observing someone else's way of life and you're not the, not so much the enemy, but in some ways we weren't welcome there. And I totally understand that. But I was still very naive as to what military occupation was. You know, I thought we were actually doing something good there, that we were there to um, help the Iraqi people. Now, there'll be people who listen to this and, and, and think, of course you weren't, it was an illegal war. And I think that's, it's kind of easy to make that assumption. Um, and I think if I hadn't joined the military and I'd gone to the Iraqi anti-Iraq war peace protests and been informed or perhaps raised in an environment where I would have had access to that information through perhaps school, or through having a wider understanding of history, which we now know is is very much is very much taught to kids in the sort of schools I went to from a very sort of narrow view, then yeah, I would have probably understood that. But when I went there, there wasn't that knowledge base there, and it certainly wasn't that easy to Google things like it is now. And you know, it's, there just weren't the resources. The sort of 24 hour news culture hadn't really started. We were on the edge of things like Sky News being very active reporting from places and the sort of embedded journalist and photographer, Never, we never saw those in Basra. I just never came across any journalists. And I, I sometimes think if I'd met somebody from that background and had an opportunity to speak to them, maybe at that point I might have started to see a sort of wider picture of what was going on in Iraq because at the time that I was there one of my sole purposes was to keep each other alive and you know the wider mission was never really made clear to us and I don't think that a lot of us knew what we were doing there apart from trying to survive. So the camera although was for this very practical reason about if we were talking about a street, I could say it's it's on the it, this is you know it's sort of a, this landmark, this this little shop here is that street, and when you get to that street, you need to turn left. A bit like Google Images, right? I suppose it's like we were creating our own version of that. But then I started to look at it less singular and more layered, and looked at the people 
who we were also encountering, who were the people who lived in Basra. And um, the camera became a, a form of documenting. And I mean, I know this now, but the documentation of people outside of a Western white context is a real like colonial activity. I, but when I was in my early twenties in Iraq, I didn't have any of this language. I had not even explored it, but I still couldn't find the words to find why that was difficult. Why even then without even any of this knowledge that I have now, I still found it really difficult because first of all, on a practical level, I couldn't speak Arabic. Secondly, I was a white woman wearing military uniform. And of course, I'm going to look like something from outer space. I was not entitled to be there. I was there in, a, in, you know, in the role of the military. So we were driving armored vehicles. Well, we weren't at the start. We were using these soft skin vehicles, which were really dangerous. And we were carrying weapons. So why on earth did I expect anyone to want to speak to me or have their photograph taken? So even then I was really in conflict with like, my role as like a human being. <laughs> and then this military role that I was there. And then my, my loyalty to my uh, patrol, to the people that I was protecting, who I was part of. So there was a lot at play. And so the camera, and the point I'm getting to is that the camera became a little bit of a safety blanket for me. Um, and it, it gave me a way to take photographs of anything. You know, I used to take uh, sunset pictures, pictures of the Shat Al Arab River, um, pictures of each other. I kind of knew early on that it was more appropriate for me to photograph perhaps the soldiers I was with more than like sticking a camera in the face of an Iraqi family who I couldn't really have a proper conversation with. I felt really sort of, yeah, like I said earlier, it felt quite, quite invasive. And I think out of the pictures I brought back from Iraq, I've probably got less than five of Iraqi people. The rest are all of just um, us and each other. And, but for me, they were like snapshots at that point. But when two of our soldiers were killed in an IED, um, those uh, pictures that I'd taken, those snapshots were also the last photographs taken of those two men. And I then sort of looked at kind of documentary photography from a conflict perspective. And it's really interesting that then my resources were all kind of made by men. Philip Jones Griffiths, Don McCullin, Larry Burroughs. And I hadn't even like recognised that there were like very few women or just very few non-cis men who were war photographers because I didn't have those words or that understanding. And, you know, and I feel like I'm a good example of someone who has tried to do the work to become more aware of these things rather than someone who is quite virtuous and has always been aware and tends to make people like me who've come from a working class background through the military somehow as being uh, unable to be aware. And I think that's the that's the road I'm going on with photography at the moment is, you know, I use that language of photography to explore the areas of representation that I felt I didn't understand that I was ignorant about. Um, and I think there is a lot of ignorance in Western culture because we have the entitlement of our 
skin colour and so we've never had to question our place somewhere because it's never been raised and you know often people don't even want to say that they're white yet you know black and brown people are constantly aware of their skin colour because of the microaggressions and the way that they're treated within the systems that we have here in the West. But if if I'd known those things now and gone to Iraq in 2005, I probably would have done it so differently. In fact, I probably wouldn't have even gone. I probably would have left the military. You know, it's, it's a very, it's a very complicated explanation of how I got into photography because it isn't based on a, uh, a like a, a training in photography, which is totally valid or doing a degree in photography. It was based a lot on personal experiences and it's always been a very personal path for me. And I learned to become better technically as a photographer because I had to make money to live. I didn't, I don't have the support of affluent family members or a, a well-paid person in my life. You know, I am the kind of the breadwinner, the ho all those cliches, the person who looks after the home and everything else. So I had to kind of do a lot of press photography and event photography and portrait photography very early on as a freelancer to be able to make that work. But it really took me away from carrying on the journey that I started in Iraq. It, it almost put it on hold, really. And it's been like that for quite a while. That's that's all really really interesting. I think your your journey and your experience is very unique. And I think one thing that really comes to my mind, um, just listening to to your story, that that is something that we've not really talked about, and I don't think is really talked about that much in the industry as a whole, is class. I think that there's a huge class problem in photojournalism, mm -hmm. and I think that what you said about you know. Sometimes maybe people feel like they're coming from this position of knowledge and power and and they're already, you know, um, switched on to these conversations about ethics and they make an assumption that people who don't have that knowledge or don't have that experience or didn't have the benefit of the education that provided them with that access, that that's unattainable. But the vulnerability that you're describing in your and your experience and your your openness, I think, about saying that you wouldn't do things the same way if you if you had an opportunity to go back and you do things very differently. Yet it did lead you on this path to where you are. I think mm. that there's that's really beautiful, and I really I really appreciate that. Yeah, I think whilst it's been difficult in a way because I don't have some of the knowledge to fall back on, um, I would hope that it has made me quite a sensitive. Um, photographer and the way that I approach things. Sometimes I'm very conscious that maybe overly so. I think it's interesting that I've seen sometimes better care in sort of like the documentary filmmaking world around people's psychological welfare. And I think it's because films generally take a lot longer to make. I found press photography like the hardest, hardest thing to do because I do think about things a lot and to be very reactionary and create great pictures that tell the story in one go means that you do have to leave your morals at the door quite a lot you know it's very difficult to like do all those things together and there are some really 
well-accomplished press photographers and they have a certain skill set. It just, I think, for me, I realised that it, that wasn't a skill set that I had. And I was always thinking about what I was leaving out the frame. And this story would be put to a press agency and the picture might be great, but it will be used in lots of different contexts. And I think what was a real turning point for me is that I, um, I think because of my military background, I was often trusted with things because I don't know why, but it gave people that confidence in me to do the work. And I'd be put in situations where I might be on the Royal Rota. And I think once I got a portrait of um, Kate Middleton, and I, I just wanted, I just framed it nicely. I thought it was a nice picture, and I sent it into the news desk, and it got taken by the Daily Mail and zoomed into to talk about whether she dyed her hair, because the roots were showing. And as someone who then really sort of discovered feminism, I was pretty horrified at how that image it's a very small example but how it'd been taken out of context and used in that way and i remember speaking to other photographers about this press photographers and they're like well it's just you just get another you just get paid more right because then it's been used more and i was like no nah, this is not for me this is not for me this is not what i'm about you know and, mm. I, and i noticed that kind of culture in conflict photography as well in this kind of ambition to be at the front line and to get the most sensational image or put themselves at the most amount of risk. But after I left the military, I I mean, you know, I, I think I'd pretty much um, have my fair share of, uh, of uh, adrenaline. <laughs> so I, I think I've always been looking for a slower, more careful way to tell stories that doesn't have to be overly clever, that can be accessed by people from my background, that you don't need to have, I don't know, liberal parents and... <laughs> and I don't discredit any of that. I just I just feel like people like myself who came from that other background, from that, um, and I do think that class thing is important. Whilst I enjoy a very middle-class lifestyle now, for sure, and I do, it is partly because I don't have children and I chose to not live in a big place, to have a very small mortgage or rent. And so that I can enjoy the things that middle-class people do, because why not? But at the same time, my heart's always really going to be looking at people when I was in my late teens and early 20s who felt there weren't any other choices for them. So that's really where my photography is going to go back to, and it's why I carried on working with the military, not in the wider scale, but more the people within that world who may have thought that the only route out of whatever they were going through was the military. And while it's a difficult subject, it's important for me to do that because what I'm really getting tired of is people from different, more privileged backgrounds trying to cover issues with no lived experience of that. So you were talking a little bit there about the need for more diversity in storytelling in terms of showing a woman's experience of the military and how that differs from maybe the the dominant narratives that we see about about the military 
And I also know that you do a lot of work um, geared specifically toward women and non-binary people about safety and photojournalism mm -hmm. and the importance of mm -hmm. that. And I feel like there's such an ethical imperative behind that. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why you're doing that, what the need is, and and how, how that fits in, I guess, to, to what you see as the ethics of your practice. Well, I think I, through a process of reading and having experiences with other people who were interested in feminism and were like much further along the journey than I was and starting to read more into intersectional feminism from an essay by Kimberly Crenshaw. I think she's doc a doctor, as in a doctor of psychology, I believe. But there, she wrote an essay in the late 90s which talked about intersectionality. And, um, you know, it, it, it's a complex way of um, navigating feminism, but it's a really interesting and useful tool to kind of understand that the female experience is a collective one across everyone who has uh, who identifies as female or is disadvantaged by the patriarchy and for me the community of people that benefit most from the patriarchy are often cis men now individually you know it's not about blaming one or the other that's not really how we're going to navigate through these issues but it's more that who is, who is like, especially in the community of photographers, going to experience different uh, issues with their safety based on their perceived identity as well as their actual identity. And, you know, the experiences that have been shared to me by non-binary people was that if they were biologically born with uh, female genitalia, then their choice of gender or gender non-conforming as non-binary is their identity but sometimes their perceived identity as being more female means that they would be exposed to the same uh, types of safety issues that a cis woman would i.e sexual violence and sexual assault um, and i also believe that we cannot create everything for everyone so whilst I'm aware that in the LGBTQ plus community, there are also different types of harassment and assault. I knew that to create something that would speak to that would take a whole other lifetime. Perhaps uh, sometimes you want to do it for everyone and then you have to try and define where you think you're credible to do that. And at the time of setting up Raw, which is our movement, um, I was being advised and um, and have been assisted by a non-binary person. Uh, and we've had several non-binary people in our workshops and they've like collectively helped us understand these issues more. Um, and then when we looked at women, we were looking at what we meant by women because uh, we were very conscious of a lot of anti-trans rhetoric starting to appear um, on social media. And then we started to explore what it would be like for trans women in photography which we see as women, but in this context to identify as trans women is, is helpful because again, this experience that they would face as a trans woman in the photography community um, would be potentially different to a cis heterosexual woman. And, and also the term cisgendered, you know, was really important for us to include in our, in our, in our um, work because I think to do things that, 
connect people more. You have to work with that complexity. It's easy to put things in boxes. And even the terms that we use are all fluid and subject to change at any point. And ideally, we just use those as a way for people to know who the safety training is for and who it potentially isn't for. And so that's where that that came from, because I've been asked to talk a lot about sexual harassment against women in the media. And I just felt like that was a very like singular view and it only seemed to focus on a certain demographic of women. So when I set up Raw, I thought, well, we know this now, we can't pretend we don't know it and just set up another movement that might focus on female safety training, but actually is still a bit exclusive. And, you know, I I work with people who identify across the gender spectrum, so I can't then just say, oh, this is just for, like, straight women. Like, the, the space for, like, feminism for straight white women has been a long journey. It's existed for a very long time. And, you know, a lot of what white feminism learned came on the backs of black feminism. And so we couldn't just carry on making something that didn't acknowledge that and didn't uphold a space for black women, brown women, and non-binary people to be part of that. And we're working out all the time. We don't have like some one-stop solution to all this. We're constantly changing what we do. We haven't got just one way of doing it because we work with uh, a fluid society. So we can't, and we don't want people to be overly categorized. So even when we say training, a lot of it is just facilitation and, you know, people will start a session talking about what their safety and concerns are and where they feel safe and unsafe, but also about their identity. That's like at the heart of what we do when we are running the safety sessions. And I think when you're self-aware, you can start then to look at your personal safety from a slightly more nuanced point of view, instead of thinking, well, if I do this one thing and we all do this one thing, we're all going to be safe because it doesn't really work like that. That's really, um, really helpful. And I think that that's a really useful, useful way of, of approaching it as well. And, and of thinking about our positionality or our, our identity um, in terms of approaching safety. I wonder if you could talk maybe a little bit about this, this bridge and this linkage between safety and, and how that applies, I guess, in the context of photojournalism specifically, and what kinds of things we're talking about when we're saying safety. And, and what mm. kinds of things you talk about maybe in, in these workshops to give people sort of a, a sense of what that might look like? Well, um, yeah, I mean, as you know, um, because you came, we did um, a, a group, <laughs> a, a session in New York where we brought these elements together and tried to do the first kind of what I might call holistic safety training for photographers. So less of uh, the hostile environment and first aid aspect, which is another part of the training, but more of a slightly a shorter course, not even a course really, but a program where we, if we're talking about identity as a safety concern, then our choices that we make within our identity are also potentially a safety concern, right? So, and if we're talking about identity as a safety concern, then we absolutely have to look at ethics as well because the choices we make within 
our identity is an ethical decision. And so if we've if we're going to a place to do an assignment for a news agency and we haven't really navigated our identity and we turn up with that sometimes entitled behaviour and take photographs that could be really culturally insensitive, that's an ethical safety concern now because you're potentially compromising somebody else's safety to meet your brief because you weren't aware of those um, nuances. And this is something also where I find with freelancers, they often uh, stick with a issue for a long time and do tend to get into the ethics of what they're doing more because they actually live within the community where they're working. And where agency photographers uh, only spend a very short period of time in those spaces, they, they of course don't get enough time to be able to really understand people where they are. And so in a way, I wonder when we bring these images uh, into light, when they become part of a piece of work or a, a news story, there's no real understanding about that, I don't think. So I think ethics is like an educational need um, in, in so many at so many levels, whether it's through photography schools, uh, university courses. So we brought, we built it into a raw safety session because we wanted people to think about it and talk about it in a safe way. Because I think it's something I've wrestled with most of my career. And so when you set up the Photo Ethics Centre, it made a lot of sense to include that in the safety but also in, in the wider discussion around photography and ethics, because I think people sometimes don't want to do that because they will know fundamentally somewhere inside them, they'll know that it's wrong, but they'll want to create a story to say the why it was important. It's such a fine line. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And and that, that session in New York, I was really blown away by, by the whole session and the way it came together. And I felt like the people you brought together were really all, you know, contributed something very unique. And I think that, you know, we talked a lot about trauma and, and how, you know, safety connects to trauma, connects to ethics, and all these things really build upon each other. I really valued the space that you created for that because I felt like it it brought together these things that are often treated in different discrete spaces, but brought them together and, and said, this is not something that we can treat individually. This is something that that all packages together and it all packages together in a way that's influenced by our identities. And I thought it was just mm-hmm. a really, really brilliant, um, brilliant space that you organized. And, mm, um, you. and I, I loved what you said there as well about awareness, not only of our own safety, but of the safety of others as well. Mm-hmm. And how, how that mm-hmm. factors into to the decisions we make and also is influenced by our identities, how it all comes back to sort of the same thing. In a, in a, this is again in this sort of like perception of the military as all being bad. Uh, I learned this through the military because I used to work in a context which meant that I had to put the safety of some people above my own. And so even if I was being pressured by someone senior for information about something, I would have to make sure that the safety of the person that I was working with wasn't compromised for the information. Now, when I went into photography, I could see that none of that applied. There was no real care for the 
you know, for the safety and the consent of like people that pictured in photography. And I saw that mostly in places like World Press Photo, where, you know, you speak to people and you could see that there was no connection to the person they're photographing. In some instances, they didn't even know their name. And and that, that, that sort of like nature of photography um, is kind of what almost put me off, really. You know, I thought there was some kind of moral reason for being a photographer. And I think for a lot of people, there really is. But the photography that gets really celebrated is often really problematic. And so that's why I wanted to create this sort of like platform through RAW to, and, and we run RAW in communities in, in Birmingham where I live. It's not exclusive to photographers. And that's a really important part of it for me because we are also connecting to people with no photography interest or, or anything like that. So, you know, we, we almost do the same process together because I think they all overlap somewhere. And I guess if you had any advice for somebody who was maybe starting out, maybe coming from a similar background as yourself, maybe has an interest, but maybe that interest isn't being fostered in a, any great extent. What, what advice would you give for them if they're wanting to explore a career in photography? I think it goes back to something that I was told on my um, MA. Look what's in your own backyard, <laughs> first and foremost. What's around you? Why, why are we so interested in what we can't see? And I know that human curiosity is a big thing and I completely have that too. But yes, that's there. But what what are you doing to fulfil that curiosity? What are you being curious about? And is there something within you that's proximate to you that you feel credible to document and share? And to know that it may not be the most celebrated work because people are looking for still still looking for some of the cliches but then that goes back to choosing what you want to do in photography really carefully I think and when I came out of that MA I was really unclear about where to go I think if I'd just tried to do documentary photography I would never have been able to survive because I needed to make money so also look at the reality of what it is you're going to do um, and look at the types of funding you can get to produce your long-term work, say, from the Arts Council. Um, or or any, there's lots of different types of funding, but get really conversant with that. Because unfortunately, the creative, especially because of the pandemic, the creative industry is taking a big hit at the moment. So it may be that you um, have to do other forms of work that aren't related to photography to be able to survive but just try not to let that kill the passion I think to do this work you really need to care about it so ask yourself early on in your career what do you really care about right now what what do you care about try not to get influenced by what is seen as the most exciting ways of being a photographer you know um if you desperately want to be a fashion photographer and it's what you've always wanted to do of course I'm not saying don't do those things but really check in with yourself and see where your heart is and where, where you sort of really want to put yourself. And if you can do that, then then pursue it. But also remember that even if you don't do photography early on, it'll always be here some, in some shape or form 
you know, 20 years down the line. So even if you can't afford a university education, it's not the only way into photography, really isn't. I think that's really valuable for people to hear. I know for myself, I've always struggled with the fact that I never had a formal education in photography and mm. it, it made me feel like I didn't count in some ways as a photographer, couldn't call yeah. myself a photographer. But more and more of the people I talk to, so many people are self-taught and so many mm. incredible photographers have a similar experience. So I think that that's yeah. been very reassuring for, for yeah. myself in my own practice. Finally, yes. I'd just like to ask you um, a question I'd like to ask everybody who, who comes on to the podcast is if you could tell me what does photography ethics mean to you? I think to be an ethical photographer, you almost have to try and be an intersectional photographer, which is hard. Um, but it's a journey worth taking because you really have to question your ethics. What are they? What are your values? What are your personal values? And how will they translate into your work? And also what part of you are you willing to compromise to make the work? Because there will be times where you have to do something and you will have to compromise some of your values in the system that we live in right now. It's impossible to have some kind of purely ethical practice because of where we are at in the world. But I think if you know what your ethical values are early on, then you won't have to compromise them as much because you'll choose the work to relate to that. And, you know, and that's really important because I sometimes think that moral injury is a real thing. And I do think it is a thing uh, that affects a lot of photojournalists. And if you're very sure about sort of your morals and ethics early on, and develop them, then hopefully you'll also, on a personal level, be more resilient to trauma when it happens, because we'll, we'll experience forms of trauma, I think. That you know that you did the best for yourself, rather than learning afterwards, sort of kind of the hard way, that you don't want to do that sort of work anymore. So I think um, an ethical photographer is someone who considers all the aspects of what they're photographing beyond the aesthetic and that it's just a great photo. A great photo it may be, but what was what was the journey to getting that photograph? What was the relationship with the person in the photograph? And and, and even I'll even translate that into street photography. I think the same still applies. There's this kind of instinctive spontaneous spontaneity about uh, street photography, but you're still photographing people and they're not objects. And so, you know, I've done candid street photography in the past, but found it incredibly difficult because I actually don't want to, like, sneakily take pictures of people. I'd rather speak to them first. And I think one of my favourite sort of MA sort of little tasks was to go and take 10 portraits of a stranger. And I thought, well, that's kind of strange because they won't be a stranger after a while because I'll probably sit and speak to them for... A, a good while and explain exactly what I'm doing. So there has to be a relationship for me, a collaboration of some sort for it to be ethical. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Photo Ethics Podcast. The aim of this podcast is to share new insights about photography ethics with others. So if you heard something you liked, please share this podcast with someone who would appreciate it. 
The links to all things mentioned in this episode number 10 are available in the show notes at www.photoethics.org. Join me next week when we hear from Taha Ahmad on working with historical trauma. If you're enjoying this podcast, why don't you check out our online courses? We've developed a series of three online courses designed specifically for photojournalists and documentary photographers. We discuss questions like, how do we achieve accuracy in our photographs? What's the relationship between power and consent? And when, if ever, should we intervene? These online courses come with perks, like access to an online community group for discussion and Q&A opportunities with me, the course leader. Enroll today at www.photoethics.thinkific.com or go to www.photoethics.org and click online courses. Mm-hmm.